It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live, where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the head of market analysis and joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. Okay, hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Market Watch podcast, where I am joined with head of trading, Piers Curran. As we go over some of the main events of the week, but unfortunately, Piers, there wasn't really a lot going on this week. I mean, we, we could have talked about the Bank of England, but to be honest, I thought I'd save everyone a lot of time and I'm just going to leave that aside. Um, so I did think that one particular area that we could touch upon um, was stress tests, because for any student or new entrant to markets might not be particularly familiar with what is a stress test and is it important? How does it impact prices? Uh, and so on. But before that, I have to um, kind of make clear, though, we got our predictions for the England-Scotland game very wrong. I think you were going for a, a pretty aggressive 3-1 call, weren't you? Wasn't that I, I said a 3-1 thumping. And <laughs> yeah, it was a, well, I think let's just move on. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> no more mention then. So, but you, but well, you are going to relive your 1996 experience, though, are you yes, not? Yes, indeed, absolutely. Germany at Wembley, um, Southgate not on the pitch this time, so you can't miss a penalty like <laughs> you did last time. Um, and it can go to penalties, of course. Now we're into the knockout stages. So, could you imagine if it did? Oh. The, the, the nightmares that England fans have had over the decades about facing Germany uh, in a penalty shootout because historically they just smash us. They have the, <laughs> the mental edge. Uh, it's yeah. fact. But um, yeah, we're definitely going into this game with, on paper, a much better chance of winning and definitely favourites. And obviously we're at home. So, you know, I'm confident we can march, march through. So, you know, when it comes to mental edge, there was one quote that I heard from an English football player 
that I thought was was very good. So there's all the pundits as they do BBC ITV, and they were talking about, oh, if we, you know, if we concede a goal here, we'll play this team, or what's the option, what's the route to, to yeah. winning the tournament? And Alan Shearer just said, whoever they put in front of us, we'll just play them, come what may. And that's the way it should be. And I was just like, Alan, that's why you're the man. <laughs> Oh dear. I mean, he is a yeah. legend. Come on. Well, he is. He is an absolute legend. Um, but you've got to love, I don't know, some footballers, whilst, you know, they were a legend on the football pitch, um, you know, I, th- I think as pundits, some are better than others. Um, it's, right. I actually like Rio Ferdinand's my favourite pundit. Okay. Um, actually says stuff that's quite interesting rather than just stating the obvious. Hmm. But we won't drill too far into English football <laughs> punditry on this podcast. Um, we'll leave that for a, a different episode, yeah, I think. You know, showcasing your analytical mind here. But um, mm-hmm. well, look, let's get straight into it then. And to talk about stress tests. Um, so can I qualify? Bank stress tests, right? Is that what we're yes. talking about? We're talking about financial institution bank stress tests. Got it. <laughs> no. Not not stress tests for penalty shootouts at the <laughs> Euro Championships. Um, so on on the bank stress test front, both you and I um, were were present in the market through the the, the global financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And so what I thought would be quite good is to just go back in time and and just have a look at what the world looked like then, because I think if you are a student perhaps and you're, you're just coming into markets now it's kind of it's just a given a lot of things are a given i guess if you're coming to markets new you're like yep zero interest rates is very normal qe's very normal uh, bank stress says capital buffers very normal they definitely weren't normal back then and um as many of you will know my job was kind of to provide real-time market surveillance to traders like peers um, this is prior to the inception of Amplify. And I was just having a quick look. And so up until 2007, stress tests were typically performed only by the banks themselves for internal self-assessment. So that makes sense. These are financial institutions. They're taking a lot of risk. That'd be an ongoing thing you would imagine. But the beginning of 2007 was when governmental regulatory bodies thought, oh, hang on. Uh, I guess we better really understand a little bit about what's going on here and what these financial firms is. The marketplace gets bigger and more interconnected. Um, And so regulatory bodies became interested in conducting their own stress tests to ensure effectively the operations of financial institutions. And then along came the financial crisis. So they started, I didn't know that. So the government started to do stress tests in 2007. Right, it's that's uh, ironic. Yeah, the, the timing. Is, certainly. Do you know yeah. what happened? Like, I think March two thousand and seven, Bear Stearns, uh, a couple of their subprime um, hedge funds, um, kind of had to get closed because of massive losses. That that really began. So really, when the financial crisis, we often think about Lehman's going bankrupt, which was end of September, start of October twenty uh, two thousand and eight. But really, some of those uh, alarm bells started to trigger. And you obviously, it's fine when you're looking back in hindsight, it's easy to see. But the, in hindsight, the first kind of alarm bells came in like March 
2007, I think it was. 2008. It was several months. Okay. It was the same year, but it was the yeah, beginning of 08. 08. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so no, they when just you get, started. When you get to your age, you can uh, forget these facts. So, so they just started stress testing before the crisis, but then their new stress tests obviously didn't flag that the crisis was coming. So they timed right. their, They timed it well, but obviously the test was rubbish. Is that the conclusion? Well, I guess the methodology I can only assume that they were applying at the time wasn't to the degree that they could foresee something of this magnitude occurring. I guess they. Yeah. They had to recalibrate that significantly now better today than they were in the past on assumptions only. Yeah. So basically in, in, in October, fast forward then post that 2008-09 situation, October 2012, US regulators unveiled new rules expanding this practice, requiring the largest American banks to undergo stress tests twice per year, once internally, once conducted by regulators. And so this is that ongoing assessment. And, you know, one of the things I was talking to our summer analysts about earlier this week is that when you think about central banks, I mean, in a trader's world, when you talk about a central bank, you think of 18 dots or you think of nine MPC members. But if you actually look at how many people these institutions employ, I mean, it's thousands. I mean, we're talking four or 5,000 in some cases. And so majority of these employees are working in regulation and supervision. So they're the people keeping the system kind of functioning, you know, and, and so on. So that's the kind of background and that's why they, why they do it uh, and what's been going on. The reason why we're talking about it is because last night, the Federal Reserve uh, released its results of its annual stress test and said that all 23 institutions in the 2021 exam remained, quote, well above minimum required capital levels during a hypothetical economic downturn. Now, why, before I talk about what that hypothetical downturn looks like, Piers, why don't you just give us a bit of a, an overview of like, what is a minimum required capital level? What are they referring mm. to when they, when they use this terminology? Yeah, right. This is a very good question. And I think because these tests have been around quite a long time now, and this this sort of um, tier one capital idea has been around for a long time, it might have been kind of got lost in translation as to what it is. I mean, if you want to go back to real basics, this is actually thinking about a bank's balance sheet. So if we want to just go to basics here, on, on a bank's balance sheet, so you have the assets side, you have the liability side, right? Um, so... What we're looking at as a bank on that liability side, the, the bank's uh, balance sheet, a bank's balance sheet is quite a bit different to a normal company's balance sheet. But um, on the liability side, a lot of it is debt, which is deposits, right? But then they have equity as well. And what we're looking at is the, um, the proportions of the liability side of the balance sheet. Now, if you go back to the crisis, this is all about thinking as a company, you want return on equity is a key measure, right? As a business, if you're publicly owned, your job is to make as much profit for your shareholders as possible. That's your job, okay? Now, before the crisis, banks would, were leveraging up, okay? This word leverage essentially was talking about the liability side of their balance sheet. And what they had was, you know, a lot of banks where they're, um, their kind of equity was was making up just like five percent of the 
of the balance sheet, right? Which meant that debt was like 95%. Now this meant, it, that this meant you're highly leveraged. And if times were good, you had less equity, right? But if you were making lots of profit, your return on equity was all the greater because the amount of equity was small, okay? But then of course the crisis came along and they had so much debt that it crippled them. And this is why Lehman's went bankrupt. They're way over leveraged, okay? So what after the crisis, essentially the authorities forced banks to um, rebalance that liability side of their balance sheet and increase the amount of equity as a proportion, uh, which is bad news for shareholders when all you're looking at is return on equity. It means you're forcing banks to be less leveraged, which makes them safer but less return on equity for the shareholders, right? So it was very unpopular from the banks and obviously the bank's shareholders didn't like it, but, but look, Lehman's went bankrupt and it nearly crippled the world. So obviously something had to be put in place and measures to put in place to, to never see that happen again, right? So when we're talking about core tier one capital, when we're talking about things like, you know, 12.5% um, is, is a figure where banks are kind of forced to have at least 12.5% uh, common equity on their balance sheet, okay? And so this is then also looking at the types of assets that, that qualify as common equity tier one. And, and this, is, this is where it's like the safe assets, like cash and, and, and so on. That the safe stuff has to make up like 12.5% of the bank's um, liability side of its balance sheet. I don't know if that answers your question. That, it certainly does. And that's a, that's a comprehensive summary. So uh, with this being said, then, I guess with these tests in themselves, you know, what, what exactly is it? Now we know the capital requirement side. So what yeah. the let's say the bank is doing essentially is is running then an individual or in this case um, was it twenty three select U.S. based financial institutions through a scenario a, an economic model and what people look at and the one you see talked about the most of course is the severe adverse scenario. So running a financial institution through a hypothetical shock. Now, one of the things that definitely is not a shock is the fact that all of these banks passed pretty easily, um, because as we know, we've just had a shock yeah. in, in, in real life, which was COVID-19. And so, um, in, in fact, the actual result of these latest tests showed that while the industry could post $474 billion in losses, loss cushioning capital would still be more than double the minimum required level even in the most adverse scenario. And that adverse scenario being US unemployment rate climbing up just over 10%, house prices declining 23.5%, commercial real estate falling 40%, and equity prices falling 55%, um, of which, like you and I said um, in conversation earlier today, we, we've actually fulfilled some of that criteria to some extent through the pandemic. But I was looking at the S&P and where, where, did, where do you think or what was going on in the world if we saw a 55% pullback in the S&P? Where do you reckon that would take us back to? Um, ooh, 
Well, you mean from a price point of 55? That's, that's back to 2000, isn't it? Give or take. So is that right? Because, yeah, it's about right, you, isn't it? I think, well, you're, you're, um, you're a little bit uh, bearish, I think, in, in that call. Am I? Well, for, hang on, we're trading at 4,250. Yeah, we've hit a we've hit a record all time high, uh, just now. In fact, as we're speaking. Yeah. Um, so, if we go back to, um, well, actually, here you I'm go. A, here, here's some I'm, here's here's some timing for you. What was the what was it the fifth anniversary of this week? Market ooh, market event wise. Twenty sixteen. Uh, June twenty sixteen. June twenty third, twenty sixteen. That wasn't the June the twenty third, twenty sixteen. New breaking the breaking the pre crisis high. No, we probably beat that. Well, early. the fact that it's the euros happening right now is a bit of a indirect clue. Go on, My, I've gone blank. Brexit. Oh God. Wow. Happy happy fifth anniversary, Pierce. Wow. Um, but if yeah. we if we had a 55% correction in the SP, we're basically back to where we were trading in the SP um, the day after Brexit. <laughs> right. Is that right? Yeah, 2016. So can I just clarify my my call of 2000? I didn't mean the year 2000. I meant the price. That, yeah. The price yeah. level of 2000. Can I just yeah. qualify that. My guess wasn't that bad. <laughs> so yeah and then obviously just a similar price point of course was when trump came in so when trump right. the night yep. of the u.s election in 2016 we hit close to 2000 as you said right yeah um, and then we've obviously we're, we're up at 4264 um, as it is at the moment so yeah quite i mean what scenario could you even see to get a 55 percent correction because well, if, just to give you a bit of context before I get your estimate, from the peak to the record we were trading prior to the pandemic, the pandemic sell-off from peak to trough was 36%. Right. So you need a substantial added amount on top of what that March move of 2020 was. Yeah, I guess the... I mean, if you go back to the financial crisis, that was the last... I mean, I think, I think I'm right. If my memory serves, the S&P dropped 68%. From peak to trough, um, that goes from the 2007 peak to the 2009 trough. That was, I think it was a 68% drop. Um, so yeah, the fact that COVID <clears throat> only, in inverted commas, triggered a 35% drop, then yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that the severity of the government's stress test is severe. Um, well, I, I've just looked from an unemployment point of view, so their severe case is 10.75% unemployment. Mm. Um, we actually got uh, well over 15% in the COVID crisis. Um, obviously, that was a little bit of a unique uh, crisis, of course, from that respect, because if you know, that was well in excess of the great financial crisis unemployment, which peaked at 10%. Um, so yeah, I think, look, I, I think it's fair to say the government's stress test criteria are properly stressful um, 
But, but it, put it this way, though. If, you know, you're right, the sell-off in 2008, 2009 would be in excess of the, the measurement of the stock market collapse that they're running as the scenario. Yeah. But QE didn't exist then. Mm. And unconventional measures. I mean, I think there was, what, 13 different liquidity operations that were put out during COVID in various different forms. They didn't exist. Yeah. Now you've got capital buffers, even the worst stress tests are double what they were before. I can't see how we could ever go down that much. I'm going to say it. Okay. Just not just possible. It's just, it's just, just it's not 10 possible. 10.33 a.m. on the 25th of June, 2020. <laughs> I'm just marking that. <laughs> they are, they're going to be famous last words. I don't know whether I, when I'm going to be able to pull those out and embarrass you, but <laughs> maybe maybe. Point, Maybe when the market's driven by quantum AI computing and there's some kind yeah. of cataclysmic technological failure that causes a one-time misprint. What episode are we on here? 23, did you say? 23. So I think once we get to kind of like episode 4,796, <laughs> um, I reckon I'll be able to reference back to this episode and embarrass you. <laughs> yeah, but, but you see my point. I like. Do. I mean, it's uh, the, the reaction function of the Fed and now what the system has in place with tools and from a, a safeguarding regulatory perspective, it's hard to see that happening. But look, the, what this is all led on to, and this is the kind of next point of discussion, I think that will interest people is, okay, this is all, this is all great. What does it mean from here? Well, COVID event distribution restrictions is what they're called. They're going to end June 30th. So the point being is through this real stress that we've been through, the Fed put the block on these financial institutions to be able to redistribute funds. Like you've just said, they have to um, store value, internalize it just in case of any other unforeseen shocks. But that's going to end now. We're kind of on the, the back end of the pandemic. And so a lot of analysts are now speculating that this is it then. Come next month literally is what they're anticipating these banks are all going to come out and kind of like what you were saying your shareholders now come back into the forefront and yeah. it's buybacks and dividends so what right. does buybacks and dividends two things there mean for the stock price and for the general stock market um, from yeah. that perspective so just in basic terms again i mean yeah there's two ways if you've got excess cash on your balance sheet as a company then you know returning it to shareholders is uh, you know standard mode of operation. You know you're doing well as a business, and the shareholders own the business, and so the shareholders get rewarded for the company performing well. So there's two conventional paths, and one is share buybacks. Um, this is obviously only possible with a publicly listed company, but and this doesn't um, deposit money into the shareholders' account. This rewards them in a separate way because. If you're as a company, if you're buying back shares, so these are shares that are, you know, traded on the secondary market stock exchange. You can go onto the exchange, and the company themselves can buy shares, right? And essentially, what you're doing is taking those shares out of circulation. If you like, you're buying them and then scratching them, tearing them up, putting them in the bin, if you like. So actually, the supply of shares um, reduces. Okay, the the number of shares in the business reduces. Therefore, if the share price stays the same, right, each share becomes more valuable because the supply of shares drop. So therefore, actually, 
Um, it's a way of rewarding shareholders by seeing the value of the shares they hold increase. Okay. And it also, and because of this, it also, you know, it's, it's typically quite a positive thing for share prices as well. So, you know, if there's lots of share buybacks going on, it incentivizes, you know, traders to buy these shares because clearly the company's doing well. And then, you know, it's a signal and indication that they're heading in the right direction. So they want to buy these shares. So often you'll see share buybacks um, not only reduce supply, but actually increase price. So that's, that's like a double positive, if you like, for the value of any shares that you're holding. So that's one way. The other way is literally just to take the cash and pay it to the shareholder. So a dividend is literally just paying out and you deposit money into the shareholder's cash. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, typically either one is a very positive sign, as I've said, and, you know, it's typically you know, can drive positive trends um, in the share prices of these companies. So overall then, given that where we're trading at the moment, the stock indices, I mean, is this a, is this a factor to look at at this present point in time or is it to be expected? Right. So that's the important thing. So what's going to happen with these US bank share prices in the second half of 2021? I mean, that's perhaps the key kind of debate. And there's a few things here to talk about, I think. It, it's, well, firstly, to a degree, this was expected. So let's just put that out there right now. It's not like shock horror, you know, breaking news yesterday. Banks have passed the stress test. Oh, my God, wow. No. You, you say that. I do remember the very, I can't remember the date, but the very, very first US stress test, the formal ones that came out, I remember because I was squawking at the time. And the whole market, it was like a massive yeah. buildup for weeks. And I was doing all the research. I had a full list of every institution and what was expecting values. And um, and I remember it, it was like a pin drop silence for the first <laughs> ones. And I was doing each financial firm as they were coming out after market. <laughs> and everyone was like, the market was jumping around. Yeah, that was so amazing. Big, big news, wasn't it? <laughs> what, didn't that, wasn't that, am I right in saying, um, start of March 2009, Am I not right in saying that we had some bank stress tests and um, they were better than what we were expecting? And that actually was the trigger point that turned the corner because the S&P bottomed out, um, I think it was the 6th of March, 2009. It hit the absolute low. And I'm pretty sure Citigroup was kind of right up on everyone's radar. Everyone's really worried about Citigroup. And I think I'm right in saying the stress test came out and, and for City, it was better. It was still... It was obviously mm. bad, but it was better than expected. And that was one of the thing, catalysts that people said, all right, hang on. You know, maybe we're overreacting here from a stock market point of view. And that kind of put the floor in the market. And, you know, here we are 12 years later and the thing's done nothing but go up ever since, apart from spring last year, a little blip. But yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great example of from a macro narrative how focus changes because at yeah. that point in time coming right out of a major systemic financial crisis obviously that was the information and then a few years later it was like do you remember the government bond auctions and yeah. it was like the pickup on european paper was like the event yeah. doesn't matter it if you're trading fixed crisis. income you could be trading the euro you could be trading anything 
Absolutely. Because that was just symbolic of, right, who's next? Yeah. <laughs> Italian or, or government not. bond auctions. Yeah. That was um, years. But now, I mean, the Italian one still is fairly fragile <laughs> these days, but your man Super Mario sorted that out for the time being. But uh, yeah, but now it's kind of, it moves on. These things don't go away. They're still present, but we almost acclimatized yeah. to it in a certain way. And then something even more important or more, more of a risk to markets comes. But to yeah. go back to the point so, then for the financials for the second yeah. half of the year. So, so this news is relatively expected. I, I find it quite interesting that the government have, you know, right now they've chosen, right, okay, we're going to, you know, take the restrictions off. Banks, you do what you want. Obviously, you've still got to stay within the core tier one capital requirement levels. But, you know, if you've got cash, just fine, pay it out. That's, that's your call. It's quite interesting right now that that's happening, only because, you know, the first half of this year has been phenomenal for banks in terms of the conditions they've had to be operating in. And this is very much reflected in bank share prices. You know, if you look at any of the kind of charts of of the big US banks there, you know, they're, they're flying. Um, it depends what, to- and I, I kind of, I kind of split the, the US banks bro- very broadly. And again, I'm simplifying here, but very broadly into two categories. So you've got your, your banks, in inverted commas, like um, Goldman's and Morgan Stanley, let's just say. Um, and they're less, they're, they're more, you know, they're more, much more geared around the trading side and like the IBD side. And then you've got your big banks like Citigroup and your Bank of Americas and your Wells Fargo's. These are what I would call proper banks, where they're retail and commercial banks kind of first. But yes, of course, they carry investment arms as well. Um, but it's Morgan Stanley and, and Goldman's that have rallied. I mean, like Morgan Stanley, if you go back, I'm just looking at their share price right now. And the pre-COVID high um, was at, just short of $60, well, it's $58, let's just call it, okay, pre-COVID. Then it dropped to 30. So it kind of halved in value during the spring of last year. Then not only has it gone back to the previous COVID high at 60, it's actually gone up and we broke, we've been trading above 90 um, in May, pulled back a little bit here. But my point is that the Goldman's and the Morgan Stanley's of this world have seen their share prices, they're 50% higher than the pre-COVID levels. And that's because of the fact that trading conditions have been extraordinary. Um, With market volatility comes huge trading volumes. And these banks like Goldman's, like Morgan Stanley, are very much geared up to cashing it in in terms of that side of their businesses. If you're looking at more the traditional bank, like the retail and the commercial bank, so you're talking about banks, you know, the, the best, the opposite example to Goldman's and Morgan Stanley, the opposite end of the spectrum would be something like Wells Fargo, for example. Um, or, you know, your big, your big giant banks like Bank of America and like Citigroup and so on. And the way their share prices have behaved um, since the crisis, and if you have a look at their, their kind of charts, then yeah, you've seen a similar thing drop during the crisis, the COVID crisis, and then a rebound. But for Wells Fargo, for example, so they were trading about the same share price as Morgan Stanley, give or take, pre-COVID. They were trading at $55, right? So Morgan Stanley was trading at 60 Okay, so nearly the same. Um, During COVID, Wells Fargo dropped a lot further. They got down to 21 was their low. So they dropped further. And now Wells Fargo is trading at 45, as in below the pre-COVID low. So the recovery from the COVID crisis um, has been a lot slower 
in these big, more sort of retail commercial banks because they haven't had that ed- added bonus of massive trading volumes. Okay, because they're less geared towards that. So going forward, then in coming quarters, will this normalize out as the economic real scenario picks up? Shouldn't those more commercial-minded banks pick up and and uh, and close the gap as banking or trading activity starts to decrease to a certain degree? Right. Or- Right. So I would say, yeah, if you're tra- if you're playing the US kind of banking system, you might want to have a, you know, maybe, maybe it's now, if you wanted to do a, a spread trade, it might be, let's say, shorting the likes of Morgan Stanley and Goldman. Not to say I, I think their share price is going to drop necessarily, but you're kind of shorting those more trading style banks and going long the more sort of retail and commercial banks. But there's, there's more, more important things to say as well. In the second half of this year, Earlier, I said I find this timing quite interesting. And the first start, the first part of this year has been good for banks generally, not just the trading side. But look, we've had higher inflation um, and higher yields. So this is good for the kind of banks' profit margins on their loan books. Um, we've also had a great vaccine rollout in the US, which has meant that the economy is unlocking faster. The economic rebound is much stronger. This is all good news for banks. Okay, However... In the second half of the year, well, how long is this fiscal support going to last, right? I mean, what I've, what's interesting here in the UK, so we had a coronavirus uh, business inter- interruption loan scheme. Okay, this was emergency lending to companies in the UK. Okay, and this is where you there's so if you run a company, you could borrow up to two hundred and fifty thousand pounds with no personal guarantees needed. So directors aren't liable for any of that loan. It's all on the government. It's, it's, it's free money because also you, there's no interest to pay for 12 months. Well, when's the 12-month interest-free period going to end? Now. So you're about to start having all these companies begin to have to pay interest on these loans. And look, are these companies in a position to afford the interest? Well, some of them are. But some of them are not. Um, also, when you're going to start to get, you know, the um, furlough schemes ending, well, right, what's going to happen? Are people going to get sacked? Because actually these businesses haven't recovered. So all I'm saying is the balance sheets and the loan books these banks are carrying are incredibly bloated because of the crisis. And as of yet, I don't think we've really seen the proper hangover from COVID because of all the fiscal support. So it'd be really interesting. It's I think there's two cat there's two forces in the second half of this year. It's that economic rebound and recovery driving that positive one, and then it's finding out really what's the damage from this crisis and which force is larger will ultimately determine how these banks get on. And and, and as lot and the government's obviously hoping as long as that economic rebound is powerful enough, it will overcome and be a, a, a positive that overcomes and trumps and surpasses that, that kind of negative we get when some of these kind of companies that have only been surviving because of emergency support, when they kind of implode, when that support's removed, um, things will all be fine. So, so ultimately, yes, these stress tests are priced in, but it's still positive. And I would expect bank share prices to push on higher as long as we don't get some of the key risks materializing. And, you know, who's, who's to say we're not going to get another COVID variant, which makes the current vaccines redundant? 
And on that point, certainly this week uh, has been an emerging conversation piece because um, numbers have moved up to multi-month highs in the UK, and that hasn't really influenced the the UK outlook at this point because of the fact that hospitalizations remain, by comparative terms, quite low because of the demographic is affecting and death rate, thankfully, is is very low. But the number of Delta variant of the uh, in terms of what it's comprising of the um, breakouts that we're seeing in the US and now mainland Europe. Yeah. I mean, Italy, I saw this morning, it's up to 25% of all total cases in Italy now are the Delta variant up from just 1%, uh, which is about four weeks ago or so. So right. for me, the Delta variant is going to become the dominant one. So those percentages, I wouldn't look at the world in those percentages because they will go up. It's about then how far does this number go in terms of cases? And then a really interesting study from JP Morgan yesterday, they basically ran a model looking at assumptions derived from how the virus or the Delta variant performed in the UK. And the US is lagging in terms of the first Delta variant being um, spotted. And they reckon that the US is running with about a five-week lag to seeing Delta variant peak, of which current calculations suggest it's around a third of all cases in the US. And what they did is they overlaid then what's been a decreasing speed of vaccinations right. being administered in the US with the speed of the Delta variant pickup, with now many states fully reopening with no social distancing and so on. And their prediction is we'll have a wave. <laughs> it isn't about if, but when. And then you throw in 4th of July and these other kind of spike seasonal periods. So yeah, we're definitely, I mean, to be clear, we're not out of the COVID woods just yet uh, yeah. in that respect until everyone is, you know, or as much as possible is you know, we hit those kind of very high percentage levels, a few, a full immunization, and we're still yet to go really. So, um, but yeah, I mean, just a point to add there, given the news that we've had this, this week, and certainly that's something I'm watching in mainland Europe because optimism, business morale has been improving generally because the light at the end of the tunnel, but now this new variant is just kind of hitting and developing in Europe now. Uh, this point longer in term, I mean, you're right. We've seen the take-up rate of the vaccine start to kind of, that, that curve is starting to flatten. And certainly in the US, so the take-up rate is dropping. And that's because I guess people are, think we're past it right and well actually maybe i don't need the vaccine or i, I don't have time this week so I, you know i'm not going to book it and actually do i need it anyway kind of attitude obviously you're always going to have your hardcore anti-vaxxers but there's nothing like a new wave to focus the mind and get people down to the clinic and actually get your vaccine so you know these waves come so it might actually trigger a re-acceleration in the vaccine take-up and as long as the vaccine is effective against the variant, then, you know, I think that each wave we have will ultimately be less damaging to the economy, right? Because you're not going to have hospitalizations and deaths, and therefore we're not going to need full lockdowns again. That's the yeah. hope. Well, the, the other kind of tail risk here is um, the Delta Plus variant which was talked about a little bit earlier in the week which is super super low level case numbers at the moment but this is what uh, mike and i in the amplify community were talking about a few weeks ago which is the 
um, convergence of basically the Delta Indian variant with the Beta South African. So you're combining the highest transmissibility in the Delta with the highest vaccine um, evasiveness of right. the South African variant. And these two have just decided to team up. Mm. And so, yeah, there, there's a few things to monitor. Uh, to, to be clear, this isn't really unnerving markets for trading record highs. So, yeah. um, but it's something to definitely keep on the radar. But one final interesting point that you say, because I do know a lot of students listen to our our episodes and um, I was reading a good piece about in history and it was talking about technology and innovation. And actually there's a lot of um, academic research to suggest that the 1930s was the greatest era of human technological innovation and advancements. And of course, the 1930s was the biggest economic collapse we've ever seen. Yeah. And what this, this, this chap was talking about was the idea that the COVID pandemic feels challenging in a lot of different types of ways. But in fact, you know, he was kind of looking at the positive innovations that come on the back of that in terms of human ability to its core to adapt, which has held us in good stead for thousands of years as a, um, you know, as a society to improve. Yeah. So well, yeah, it's just interesting say. to put the right spin you know, on things. You know what they say, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, that is that is the exact quote, and and I say that with the intention of just if anyone's listening and they're thinking, right, I've just graduated or I'm about to, and it's like, oh, couldn't be a worse time. It's like I honestly believe that that is the case, yeah. and you know I know it's not without its challenges, but yeah, that's how we move forward. Absolutely. With that, look, we'll wrap it up. Uh, Piers, thank you as ever. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Enjoy the weekend. Yeah, you too. All right. Take care of your mom. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.